0: This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson. I am the program director of graduate studies in palliative care at the University of Maryland, Baltimore including our graduate certificate, master of science and our brand spanking new doctor of philosophy PhD in palliative care. And I'm very excited to be with my colleague Connie Dahlin who will be introducing our guest speaker today who works in a field that makes me tachycardic when we have a need for someone like her. So Connie, take it away. Hello everyone, again,
1: Connie Dolan here, part of the faculty for the PhD program. And I am so honored to be introducing Dr. Pamela Hines, who has really been a leader in nursing and a leader in pediatric palliative care. She's right now the executive director of the Department of Nursing, Science, Professional Practice and Quality at the Children's National Health System in Washington DC. But she's been involved in palliative care for a long time, was involved in the Institute of Medicine, Dying in America report. Um, She's represented hospice and palliative nurses uh, across the way in addition to distinguished research. So Dr. We are so excited um, to have you and to give us the importance of this pediatric um, perspective, which pediatric, I hope you will define for us what you think the ages are, because we know there's perinatal, neonatal uh, children, adolescents, young adults, depending on where you work. Um, So just sort of talking to us about, you know, your thoughts about what's important and what you think some of the trends are and just um, where you think sort of this interface even between adult and pediatric care can kind of merge.
2: Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to reflect with both of you. I am so excited about this program that you are creating and actually very grateful for the attention that you are giving to pediatrics. The fact that you are giving this attention to pediatrics already helps to place in perspective the historic advantage that we are now finding ourselves in with pediatrics. Even though pediatric palliative care is centuries old, um, it really did not come into its own federally, statewise, and even locally until our current uh, decades. So I really am very grateful for your attention. I'm going to go back to your important mention of the IOM report, Connie, and I'm going to really speak to the significance of this report. At the time, I was at a a research institute and it was very heavily dependent upon public donations. And CURE was clearly the message that we were giving at that time, and rightfully so, as that was the mission of that institution. When I was asked um, by the Institute of Medicine to represent pediatrics and nursing on this first report, Um, I went immediately to my hospital leadership to explain that I felt I should say yes, but I also felt that this would be an embarrassment to my institution because we did not have a formal palliative care program. My leadership needed to give thoughtful consideration of that request and decided it was important enough to risk public embarrassment. And so there began my relationship then with the Institute of Medicine, now, of course, the National Institutes of National Association of the Sciences and Engineering and Medicine. That report, which um, came out in, in 2003, was uh, landmark. In essence, what we learned then was, of course, the sorrow and suffering that aligns with children who have a fatal or life-threatening illness and who are unlikely to survive. We had, however, very little data for that report in terms of um, empirically-based. We had experientially-based data. We had important historic work that had been done by a real pioneer, uh, Dr. Ida Martinson, who actually created one of the first home studies in America where nurses would have beepers 24 hours a day to be on call for families who chose to take their child home when um, it was quite clear the child would not live much longer. And her findings were persuasive about the comfort that this program gave, the uh, likelihood of parents using it, and there began then a research initiative for all of us across many disciplines. To continue that story about coming from a research institution, I then came back from the IOM experience and began very carefully planning for a palliative care initiative in our um, esteemed facility. And to do that, I uh, each year brought forward the offer to our leadership to conduct a culture analysis to see where we should do um, certain strategies to promote palliative care in pediatrics and where we might want to be careful. And for seven years, um, we later wrote about this experience and labeled it the zigzag experience of creating palliative care programming in a hospital setting I was told by leadership, not this year. Why don't you do a little more of this and a little more of that so you can hear the zigzag? And in particular, knowing the culture of my setting, I knew I needed to get independent funding uh, for Paley's Vicare research, and indeed we did. And the more we did that, uh, the more persuasive it became and more in alignment with our institutional values and goals. And one night, I got a phone call saying, all right, tomorrow, have on my desk um, your business proposal for this program. I said, oh, absolutely, and did. And um, as good luck would have it, our CEO made an appointment to meet with me about this culture analysis and the business plan. A bit of an anecdote, on that day, I was welcoming 60 new employees And in my enthusiasm in describing the benefit of research uh, for children with a life-threatening illness, my skirt fell off to the ground. And as it so happened, um, that was the evening that I was to meet with the CEO to ask him to champion pediatric palliative care in our cure-directed facility. And I went, of course, to his office for this evening appointment. And I said to his stalwart assistant, Mary, how has his day been? And she went, oh, and turned away and could not even look upon me. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So as I walked into his office, he said, you'd best close the door. And I sat down and he said, "Uh, today of all days, um, it's been a horrible day. And you're asking me for all this money to start a palliative care program. Are you sure that you want to go through with this? I said, indeed, I do. He said, i read all your documents. And then uh, this very sober, somber man began to fight a smile. And of course, I said, um, Art, what is this? And he said, I heard about the skirt. And I thought, oh, no, I've lost all my negotiating edge. Um, but in fact, he said to me, um, I'm going to champion this with a board. And he did. And I would like you to believe, of course, that the culture analysis, the business plan, were the persuasive elements. They were helpful. But he was also experiencing his own uh, palliative care need with a, a very ill family member. And I think sometimes circumstances help us to bring forward the fact that children do suffer, children do die. And if they do, everyone around them does too. So that IOM report, had a profound effect on funding for pediatric palliative care research, and it was funding that we needed. And the NIH stepped forward with good courage, and in particular, the National Institute of Nursing Research was designated to be the point place for funding for this kind of um, research. There began a whole new decade of a focus on uh, children's symptoms, uh, measurement, interventions, management, and how to bring research into clinical care of suffering children. And we adopted in response to your important question about age, the NIH definition, which at that time was zero uh, birth to age 21. As you know, um, that definition has been expanded by other associations up to the age of 36. So it's a very wide age span at this point in time. And that's a tribute to now, children who would have died at birth or very young are surviving and they're surviving into adulthood. They are not necessarily surviving um, fully cured or without uh, troubling functional impairments, but they are surviving. And we in pediatrics feel responsible for following them and doing all that we can to make their lives as as positive as possible. So then the second report that came out from the IOM Dying in America um, was a blend of adult and pediatric palliative care experts. And again, I had the privilege of serving on that uh, panel. And um, as often happens with pediatrics, I was told, um, you can write a small piece that will be called Other, and the rest of the text will be about adults. And I said, you know, at one time, That might have been very fitting because we, at that time, did not have much data. But this is different now. We have data. We know about children's symptoms, functional impact, suffering. And I can write something for every chapter. And indeed, those of us who represented pediatrics on that panel, um, in particular, Dr. Phil Pizzo and me, wrote something for every chapter. And that became another landmark indicating how far pediatric palliative care had come. And as you know, we now have a third working group. It's a round table, also sponsored by the National Academies. And uh, pediatrics is very actively involved in that particular round table. And we are producing regularly workshop summaries um, in paperback form, Mm -hmm. documents that I think will be very helpful for your um, students, your learners, for sure. So where are we going then with pediatric palliative care and where is the interface between adult and uh, pediatric care? What we recognize in pediatrics is that children continue to suffer and they continue to die. And we recognize that increasingly children are dying in their home settings. So it used to be at one time that in the high 90s, uh, the percentages then was for children dying in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And that has decreased every decade for the past three decades. And it's now much more likely that 60 to 62% of children are dying in the hospital many times after a stay in a critical care unit. And only then is palliative care begun. But that leaves then a much higher percentage of children who are dying in, in the home. And this is where the interface begins between uh, pediatrics and adult care. It's very hard to find um, prepared pediatric healthcare providers in hospice settings, um, even though it feels in our specialty that, oh, far too many children suffer, far too many children die, it is still the rarity. And so it's more likely then that the greater numbers are in adults who are suffering and dying, and therefore, understandably, hospices are geared to that patient population and their families. We, however, are still geared towards taking care of the ill child, the ill child's family, and the ill child's home care providers professionally and family. That means we're developing curricula to um, offer to what are typically the providers of adult health care to prepare for providing care for children. And in particular, I'd like to mention um, people like Dr. Debbie LaFond, Dr. Deb Fisher, Dr. Kathy Perko. Who have created home curricula to help prepare the adult provider to take care of the very ill child as well mm-hmm. as the ill child's family and their adult home-based professional caregivers. We have taken full advantage of telehealth um, in this regard, so the curriculum is often offered by telehealth, but now when families indicate they would prefer to take their child home from the hospital, we are doing an official handoff uh, so that we can still be present to an extent um, for the child who's going home who knows us. And this work has been published by Dr. Megan Weaver, and she's done a terrific job of documenting what happens when we do the handoff from the hospital-based pediatric team to the adult-based provider, the family and the child. And in her work, she's been able to document that the children are delighted that they're not forgotten by the hospital-based team. So here we are on the screen in their homes and they think this is pretty terrific. Mm -hmm. Um, What we think is also pretty terrific is that we are no longer just talking to one family caregiver who's at the hospital. We are talking to sometimes a roomful of people who are taking care of this child. So it's the family that lives with the child. It's the extended family who's going to be involved in the care. It's the neighbors.
0: Um,
2: and they are all very eager to learn what they can do, what they shouldn't do. And then there are the home hospice providers, the home visiting nurse, etc., in the room who are learning from us as well. Um, it's a, It's an incredibly positive experience to be able to do what we consider to be somewhat of a handoff, doing it live and doing it more than once. And that's what telehealth is allowing us to do in that interface. So the interface now has a formal curriculum and also has uh, a pediatric presence in the room during care. And that has seemed to be ah. a very comfortable place that we have achieved at this point in time. Now,
1: let me be sure I stop there so you can ask me questions. Well, I think that's been lovely of sort of thinking about that because I think, you know, Dr. Hines, the interesting part for me of, you um, know, recognition and sort of this highlight and as you know, I edited the NCP guidelines and we're very deliberate starting in 2009 to kind of start adding that pediatric content and moving from the hospital now to kind of the community. I also think about the interesting part that I've been having this discussion, at least within nursing and, and sort of with medicine is that you know, the care that we approach is really the same. We and adults have a lot to learn from pediatrics in this family-centered care because pediatrics has done it so well. I think the challenge that I've been sort of saying is, you know, so we think about the assessment process, it's the same, but then how do we apply it? Because I think in pediatrics, when we think about applying it to children, that's a special population. Applying it to geriatrics is a special population. And it's been interesting. This these discussions that I've had of saying, oh, but we're different. I'm like, well, but we're all healthy care providers. And we're all coming from the same learning part. And so sometimes I think that there's a lot of work of us trying to show our commonalities instead of always highlighting our differences. And I'd just be curious what some of your thoughts are about if you agree with that or not, or if there's other ways we need to look at it and kind of keep moving things forward.
2: I appreciate your words a lot, Connie. And I certainly can remember the effort that pediatrics gave to making the distinction between children and adults, because at one time it didn't appear in care that we made much of a distinction. Same rules, uh, same approach, medicines not particularly tested for use in children, but based upon use in adults and so on. So there wa- there has been a concerted effort to say um, Children have important differences, and therefore the government, product companies, um, the FDA need to make special um, requirements to protect the well-being of ill children. And so we we think that all of that effort gone into labeling, et cetera, was greatly needed. I think there are also advantages to working together. Um, across the age spectrum, across the diagnosis spectrum, across the illness spectrum. What we now experience in pediatrics is for us remarkable in that the children, quite sincerely, who died within usually 48 hours of birth are living Mm -hmm. and into adulthood. In some instances, we need to be working together to treat together. Um, I do think um, that there is much to be gained by that kind of collaborative approach. I would share that at this point, there remains, and I recently did um, another presentation to really treasured colleagues at the FDA about uh, children's uh, patient reported outcomes. And as you know, this work is built upon decades of instrumentation where we have uh, carefully assessed psychometric properties, carefully looked at how these instruments perform within active clinical settings. And at the end of the presentation, a very uh, remarkable individual said, but as you know, we really can't trust children uh, to be able to tell us what they're experiencing. So even though there's such strong evidence, such strong scientific foundation to dispute that, it is important for us to know that it's a belief out there still, and even amongst the most well-informed individuals in science. So we still need to anticipate that children will be treated um, differently than how we might involve adults in their own care. Children are clear when they want to be involved and when they don't want to be involved and they are quite able to tell us yes, no, and why. And so it's important to give them the opportunity to give us those responses to guide our
1: care to be the best that it can be. I'm sort of still thinking in of what you just said that you know children can't be trusted and yet I, I keep thinking you know there as you know very well there's also sometimes such an honesty because they haven't been taught to kind of have this filter and so in fact they're probably more honest than you know anybody right in different time periods certainly you can imagine you know adolescents you know what's going on or whatever but um, I'm that is just fascinating I'm You know, as you think about the future, are there particular areas, I mean, it sounds like we still need to do some work about understanding children's decision making almost, um, but are there other future areas that you think are going to be very important on the horizon? I think coming to us on the horizon
2: is a different way of analyzing symptom data and a different way of analyzing function data, so that we can literally much more quickly, much more succinctly, know if this child is in a high suffering profile, a medium or a low suffering profile and treat accordingly. And that is going to propel our assessments and our interventions forward in a a much more rapid manner because it's going to be simplified and much more useful then giving a clinician scores from four to 11 different instruments or items we will be giving one score. And I'm pretty excited about that advance that is coming from uh, research. And that will be with us fairly soon uh, and readiness for trialing in clinical care. Wonderful. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm so happy about that, Dr. McPherson. It's just a real advance for us. So that's definitely coming. Um, Definitely coming now and in place already is inserting the child voice into cancer clinical trials. And in years past, that was a separate research study, not embedded now under current uh, cooperative group leadership particularly the chair, the chair, Dr. Doug Hawkins, these are moving into embeddedness and that's a second real advance for the child voice
0: during serious illness. That's
1: great, Lynn, do you wanna
0: ask the last question? I do, in, in one minute or less, what advice would you give our PhD students as they're moving forward into their, their new career? And m- most of them are not pediatric specialists, Uh, What advice would you give them?
2: I really believe in team. And that means if the best care is given by a team, and I believe it is, then to become a part of a team. And I believe if the best care is given by a team, the best science is done by a team. And it should be uh, in kinship with each other. So that means looking for your partners who share your values Your ideas respect what you bring to the table and are all about supporting where you want to go with your own ideas and your own career and where you can be a part of supporting the career and ideas of others. So team in many ways is what I would recommend.
0: You're such a kind and gentle and obviously brilliant person. I want to kidnap you and make you come live in my house. There's a treat, right?
2: (laughs) I'm going to leave you
0: with that false impression. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hines and Connie. Thank you for being our lovely host today. And uh, we look forward to hearing about more research from your institution. Thank you so much. Happy to share in the future. Thank you for what you're leading. Thank you. Take good care now. Yep. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, Ph.D. and graduate certificate program in palliative care or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.